God, we thank you for the truths that we have seen and sung. God, thank you for your great mercy. Thank you that where our sins have abounded, that your grace has super abounded. God, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that uh, the mercy you offer is wide enough even for the weakest, the vilest, and the poor, and such are we. God, thank you for how you've chosen to look upon us with favor. Thank you for how you've sent your Son to uh, propitiate um, your wrath against us. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to hear from you. God, I pray you would speak through your word. God, I pray that you would increase our faith. I pray that you would give us the broken heart and contrite spirit over our sin that you find acceptable and well-pleasing. God, I pray that you would use your word now as a means of grace to produce in us Glory and honor and praise and adoration for Jesus like he deserves now and forevermore. God, I pray finally that your word would come forth now, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open to the book of Joshua, please? The very end, chapter 24, we come today to the conclusion of this book. In this conclusion, we'll find a record of three burials, three graves in ancient Canaan. We read first of the burial of the servant of the Lord, Joshua, and then the burial of the bones of Joseph, and finally the burial of the high priest Eleazar. And this is our last sermon in the book of Joshua. The Spirit-inspired author of this book chose to conclude with these burials, not simply uh, to tie up loose ends in the storyline and tell us what became of some of the main characters. More than that, looking at these three graves provides the, oper- the author Another opportunity to drive home the main theological points of the book. And those chief concerns were summarized, you may remember, in 21 verses 43 through 45, which said, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that He swore to give to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as He had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And these three burials preach that message once more. As the dead bodies of these men are put in the ground, we hear proclaimed again that not one of God's good promises fell to the ground. All came to pass. And so this conclusion, like all good conclusions, is an invitation for us to consider all that's come before. 
And because the book of Joshua is part of a bigger book and a bigger story, this conclusion also is an invitation for us to consider where things go from here. Just by way of reminder, chapter 24 of Joshua recorded a final farewell speech that Joshua made to the people of Israel now that his work of leading them into that ancient promised land was finished. We looked at that last week. Now, after Joshua gave God's people that word from God and that charge to serve God, we read in verse 28, look at it. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So as all Israel goes to their inheritances, the plot line of the book ends, and so we're primed and ready for our conclusion. In verse 29, look at it. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Joshua dies. He's buried, we read, in his own inheritance. This is significant because this man was not born in a place that he could call his inheritance. He was born as a slave in Egypt, and he was buried as a free inheritor of the good land God promised. So Joseph's burial site shows again that God keeps his promises, and his words come to pass. And when we read of Joshua's death here at the end of chapter 24, we're also reminded of how the book began in chapter 1. That's because the book of Joshua also began with a death notice. Chapter 24, the death of Joshua. The beginning of chapter 1, the death of Moses. When we began this series a year and a half ago, we read these words in 1.1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, an important connection is made between the deaths of Moses and Joshua in the title that was given to Joshua in verse 29 of our conclusion. Did you hear it? After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died. 1-1, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. Only 15 times in the book of Joshua is someone called the servant of the Lord. The first 14 times always refer to Moses. The author of this book repeatedly ascribes that title to Moses and only to Moses. And as he does... He's setting us up in part to be struck at this conclusion when someone else is called the servant of the Lord. It really is a beautiful thing when at the end of his life, Joshua's buried, he, he receives that same designation as Moses. And Joshua receives this special title, and that reveals how God accomplished another one of his good promises. If you remember... God has told Joshua earlier in chapter 1, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. Chapter 3, verse 7, today, Joshua, I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. 4.14, after they crossed the Jordan, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of 
Moses all the days of his life. And so in the burial of Joshua, again, God exalts Joshua beside Moses by bestowing on him this great title, the servant of the Lord. I wonder if you could choose any title to be given to you upon your death. Would you consider being called the servant of the Lord, the highest honor? What would you consider the greatest honor and how you could be remembered? Uh, He was really, really good at his job. He was the inventor of this or that thing that helped humanity. Everything he touched turned to gold. He was a loving husband and father. He had a very fruitful ministry with those God put in his life. None of those things could be better than this. He was a servant of the Lord. Nothing can hold a candle to that designation in honor. And if you really believe that, that should have massive implications for the way that you live your life, even this week. May God give us all the heart to say, if I could only be remembered when I die as a servant of the living God, that would be more than enough for me. Now, having said all that, I don't think that the most direct way to connect Joshua receiving this title to us is to think about us being called the servant of the Lord like him. Because actually, as as we've seen demonstrated in the book of Joshua, the title, the servant of the Lord, is a special and significant title and is actually not that common in the Old Testament, perhaps surprisingly. Moses goes on to be called the servant of the Lord many times throughout the Old Testament. Joshua only one time. Just a handful of times the Psalms refer to all of God's people generally as the servants of the Lord. But most of the time, this description is reserved for just a select few individuals and a few time to refer to all of Israel as a whole. Only a few individuals generally whom God used in really significant ways in His purposes of redemption for His people. Consider this list. Moses, many times, is called this. Joshua, a couple of times. King David is called this many times. The prophets, the Lord calls my servants. And again, a few others a few times here and there. But by and large, this is a special title in the Old Testament narrative. And I hope you know this by now. You are not the next Joshua or Moses or David in God's plan to save the world. Rather, this specific and special usage of this title, the servant of the Lord, sets us up to look for another servant of the Lord whom the Old Testament anticipates after Joshua is buried. Again, these men I mentioned, Moses, Joshua, David, they're all used in hugely significant ways as God accomplishes the redemption of His people and and carries out His purposes for them. And so when the prophets teach us to anticipate another servant of the Lord, they're teaching us by association that this servant will accomplish God's redemptive purposes for His people. And I would suggest 
that they're teaching us to anticipate this servant will accomplish an even greater redemption than Moses did in Egypt. And this servant will win for God's people an even greater inheritance than Joshua did for the people in Canaan. And this coming servant will rule over God's people for their good in an even greater kingdom than David did in ancient Israel. In Isaiah 52 and 53, the Spirit of God speaks through the prophet Isaiah about the coming work of the servant of the Lord. In this great prophecy, Jesus is referred to as the Lord's servant. The passage begins in Isaiah 52, 13. 52, 13, and the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Exalted even above the place that God exalted Moses and Joshua to. And then later, in chapter 23, verse 5, we learn this servant of the Lord will take upon himself our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We keep reading and we learn that this servant of the Lord will be raised from the dead to great reward to rule and to reign, and the effect of his work will be many sinners are counted righteous before God. We read, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Verse 10, he has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied on the other side of his substitutionary death. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, there's that special title again, shall my servant make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." So when we see Joshua inherit the name, servant of the Lord, in this conclusion, our ultimate hope and takeaway is not simply that we should strive to be a servant like Joshua was, though we should, but ultimately that we would see how God raises up another servant like Joshua, a new and better Joshua. And so we follow Jesus, the servant of the Lord, trusting that if we do, then we will be brought to glory and made sons of God, because God is with this servant of the Lord, always, in a way far greater than he was with Moses or Joshua, because he is the only begotten son of the Father, and God has exalted him to the highest place. How blessed are you if you take refuge in him, if you belong to him, if you follow him, if God has made you a co-heir with him? Verse 31 reports to us how the people of Israel fared under Joshua's leadership. 
Now, we talked at length about verse 31 in last week's sermon. We won't rehash all of that this morning, but let's still read it now. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So this verse, I think, should increase in the context of this conclusion increase our admiration for the good work that God accomplished through His servant Joshua for His people. Right? Just God faithfully gave His people the land and rest and victory and inheritance under Joshua. And then God kept His people faithful to Him throughout all the days of Joshua's leadership. And on this note, uh, verse 31 ends everything that we hear about the Lord's servant Joshua in this book. In verse 32, we move to a second grave site. So we leave the Lord's servant buried in his inheritance, and we move on to burying some old bones. Look at verse 32 with me now. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from the land of Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. And the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, it became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Uh, the story of Joseph's bones is one of the great little subplots of the first part of the Scriptures. Uh, Joseph, you'll remember, was the favored son of Jacob. Jacob was Abraham's grandson and a father of the nation Israel. In fact, God changed his name to Israel. And Joseph, this favored son, was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, but God was with Joseph in Egypt, and God exalted Joseph there. Does that sound familiar? While Joseph was ruling in Egypt under Pharaoh, a great famine came on the earth, and it actually forced Jacob and his sons to leave the land of Canaan and go looking for food in Egypt. And they found more than food there. They found Joseph exalted in Pharaoh's house. Ultimately, if I can fast forward, ultimately Jacob and his sons had to move to Egypt in order to be saved from death by famine. And so they were protected and provided for and blessed by Joseph in Egypt. But even as Joseph was reigning in Egypt, and even as his brothers and his father Jacob, father Israel, came down to Egypt to join him, Joseph's heart continued to be for the land that God promised them in Canaan. And Joseph was so, so sure that God would fulfill his promise to give his people that ancient land. He was so confident God would do this even while God's people were leaving that land to move to Egypt, so confident that by faith in God's word, Joseph on his deathbed made his brothers promise him something. The very end of Genesis, another book that ends with a death. Joseph said to his brothers, Genesis 50, 24 and following, I'm about to die but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you 
and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. God is going to take you out of here. God is going to give you the land he promised. And when God does that, take me with you. Don't leave my bones here. I want to be buried in the land of God's promise, where my father Jacob is buried, and his father Isaac is buried, and his father Abraham is buried, whom God called. 400 years after the death of Joseph, God did visit his people and brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And when the people of Israel left Egypt in haste and in great joy, Moses, the servant of the Lord, remembers to take something very important with him. In Exodus 13, 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So how sweet it is to read in the last chapter of Joshua, at long last, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. Joseph's faith in God's good promise proved to be well-founded. No one who hopes in the Lord will ever ultimately be put to shame. In Joshua 24, Joseph's faith is vindicated, even as it may have seemed silly in the face of God's people having to leave that land. In Joshua 24, the word of God is vindicated again. And these instructions Joseph gave about his bones are highlighted in the New Testament. Have you read that? In Hebrews 11, by this act, Joseph is added to the great cloud of witnesses that surround us and precede us, who trusted in God before us and call us by their example to run the race set before us with endurance, Hebrews 11 and 12. So Hebrews eleven twenty two says, by faith. Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. The specific place in the land where Joseph's bones are buried double emphasizes how faithful God was to his ancient promises. What did verse 32 say? They buried the bones at Shechem. Shechem is the very first place that Abraham went to in the land after God called him out of Ur of Chaldeans. Shechem is the first place in the land he went, and Shechem is the first place where God told Abraham, this is the land, this is the place I will give to your offspring. And so Joseph's bones buried in Shechem serves as a perfect conclusion, not only to the book of Joshua, but also in a sense to the story that began with Abraham in Genesis 12. God keeps his promises. Now, it's really neat, I think, to consider how burying these old bones showcases the faithfulness of God in Joshua's day. But how great was it for Joseph? Now, his bones are buried in Canaan, just likely he wanted. But honestly, how does that represent any kind of reward or benefit for Joseph, for his faith? Joseph's children get to enjoy the fruits of God's faithfulness. 
That's great. But Joseph? I'm going to sound like I'm preaching out of Ecclesiastes here, but I think I can confidently say that the burial of Joseph's bones in Canaan made zero difference in the quality of his life because he was long dead when it happened. Neither do I believe uh, that it made any difference in the quality of his afterlife when his bones were put in the ground there. Joseph's bones being put in Shechem could not count as Joseph receiving that land as an inheritance himself, could it? And really, the same is true for his father Jacob, right? Who received the same promise. What did the middle of verse 32 say? What was Jacob's relation to the land of Shechem? As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem. Listen to this. In the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Jacob had to buy a piece of the land if he wanted to have any of it. He had to purchase it from someone else because it never belonged to him. He never lived in the land of Canaan as if it was his own inheritance. He lived in the land of promise as a stranger and an alien in it, not an inheritor of it. And the same was true for Abraham and Isaac. The only portion of the promised land that they could ever call their own was a cemetery plot that they had to purchase. And Joshua alluded to that earlier in chapter 24. If you remember the very beginning of his great farewell speech, he recounts the Lord's gracious deeds to Israel, beginning with his election of Abraham and and bringing Abraham out of an idol-worshiping family and land. And then verse 3 of chapter 24 said, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through It didn't say, and I gave to him. I just led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And then verse 4, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Okay, Esau... The brother of Jacob was not the child of Isaac that inherited the great promises of God, which he made to Abraham. Jacob was the son, not Esau. Jacob was the son of Isaac that God graciously chose to be his child of promise. But how good was it to be the chosen people of God and the inheritor of God's promises? Verse 4 said, God gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. So who's the divinely favored and chosen one again? After the initial wonder wears off of how neat verse 32 is and this powerful symbol of God's faithfulness that the burial of the bones are, perhaps upon further reflection, verse 32 makes us a little uncomfortable to think about the non-inheritance of Joseph and the non-inheritance of Jacob. It leaves something to be desired for Joseph's sake, doesn't it? For Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But really, couldn't the same be said about Joshua? 
Joshua sends every man back to his inheritance. And we don't get any news of how much Joshua enjoys his life and the inheritance God gave him. The next thing we hear, Joshua died. The happy storybook ending we all prefer to read is that he lived happily ever after. No, he died, and he was buried in his inheritance. We may even consider it a tragedy when we hear stories like Joshua's, of someone working diligently and faithfully for something their whole life and finally achieving it, and then they die. It's taken from them. So Joshua saw a day, unlike the fathers of the nation, He saw a day when the land of Canaan was his inheritance, but ultimately he ended up in the exact same position as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, buried in a cemetery plot in Canaan. He got to personally enjoy, unlike Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for a time, this act of God's faithfulness, but death was a great equalizer. And Joshua's end was really no different than Abraham's. Dale Ralph Davis points out the same truths. He says, true, these graves witness to the fulfillment of the Lord's promise, and yet there is an incompleteness, a tragedy about it, since it is marked by death. Why does Israel's saga of faith and life have to keep closing its chapters with death notices? Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses' death. The book of Joshua ends with Joshua's death. Is this not the sting of sin we see here amid the fidelity of God? Is this not a sign of the wrath of God against us? So we've said before that the Bible teaches us to think about ancient Israel in Canaan as something like a new Adam in a new Eden. They're established as the people of God. They live in a place where God dwells among them. They're called to be a kingdom of priests for God, meaning they're called to to rule over that place for God's sake and to mediate the blessing and knowledge of God to the rest of the world, just like Adam and Eve were called to do. And yet, even as Israel receives this inheritance in Canaan, we sense strongly at the end of Joshua, that still not everything is set to right. Not everything that was lost in Eden has been regained. The wages of sin still linger because we read Joshua died. Oh, my friends, you need to know that the ultimate hope of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and I believe even Joshua was not just in possessing that land for a little while before they died. Their ultimate hope was in God undoing all of the curse of sin, which means they hoped in the resurrection of the dead. They looked forward to the day when their bodies would come up out of those graves in Canaan. That's why they wanted to be buried there. For an enduring inheritance in a land of promise that they would have as an everlasting possession like God promised to them. Remember Hebrews 11. We've mentioned it briefly a few times already in our study of Joshua. 
It tells us of this ultimate hope of Abraham and sons. Hebrews 11, verse 8 says, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These men died in faith, that that is, they died not having received the things that they ultimately hoped for, but they died looking forward to it still. People who speak thus, Hebrews eleven fourteen. people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died still looking forward by faith to a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Our ancient fathers looked beyond a temporary inheritance in that ancient land. They hoped for a better and lasting inheritance, a better country, a future homeland, a city that has foundations. And this was connected to their hope that they would be raised from the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Abraham certainly believed God was a God of resurrection. Later in Hebrews 11, it says, When Abraham, by faith, when Abraham was tested and offered up Isaac, and he, had, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And later in Hebrews 11, we're told of others who walked in this same faith. And in verse 35, we read, Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Resurrection. That was their ultimate hope. In Matthew 22, Jesus has a confrontation with the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. They didn't. And Jesus told them in Matthew 22, 31, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what it was said to you by God? Here's Jesus's proof that uh, God will raise the dead. God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So his being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is proof that God is God who resurrects the dead. And so these men walked by faith, looking to an inheritance from God in a kingdom 
that would never be shaken. And as I said earlier, hinted at earlier, I believe Joseph wanted to make sure his bones, the remains of his body, were buried in Canaan because he looked forward by faith to the resurrection of his body from the dead. He believed God would raise him and then deliver him to the inheritance that he promised him. And so he wanted his body to be buried in the land of promise. You can count on this. One day, the body of Joshua will be raised up from the earthly inheritance he was buried in. And the bones of Joseph will be reconstituted as a resurrected, glorified body. And he will be raised out of that ancient inheritance of his children. And likewise, the bodies of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be resurrected out of that land in which they were buried. And their bodies will wake from their long sleep. They will be raised like Christ, glorified like Christ. They'll rise in the land of Canaan that God promised them so long ago as inheritors of the world with Christ. Can you imagine being buried in the ground of a land that's not your inheritance and being raised out of that ground and find yourself standing on the ground of a land that is now your everlasting inheritance? Could there be any greater way for Abraham to inherit the promises of God? And we are to look with Abraham to the city that has foundations. We are to look with Abraham in faith and hope, with Joseph in faith and hope, to that same city in the same country. Because Hebrews 13, 14 says that we, like Abraham, have no lasting city here. But instead, we seek the city that is to come. This is your ultimate hope, dear Christian. The resurrection of the dead. One day, if the Lord tarries, we will all die and be buried in the ground like Joshua. But then one day, we will all come out of our graves like Jesus Christ. What effect should the hope of the resurrection have on your life? It should make you steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because the dead will be raised. Because Christ has been raised. Back in Joshua 24, look at verse 33 now. The final and third burial, the last verse in the book of Joshua, burying a high priest. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Eleazar, the high priest, has played a role in this book. You remember, together with Joshua, he divided the land into distinct allotments uh, that each tribe would have as their inheritance. And Eleazar's father, Aaron, served alongside Moses throughout the beginning of Israel's redemption. And here at the completion of that redemption, when Israel inherits the land, we are called to remember how Aaron's son, Eleazar, served alongside Moses' successor, Joshua. So Moses and Aaron are long gone, and now Joshua and Eleazar, their successors, are gone 
2. And when we consider in tandem the death of Joshua and Eleazar, it marks the end of an era. So now the question becomes, how will things go for Israel in the land now that it's theirs? And that's a story for a different book of the Bible. Joshua doesn't tell that tale. The last thing we know as readers of this great book is that the high priest passes away. He is buried. We turn the page and begin the book of Judges, and really we basically forget about Eleazar. So another high priest rises to take his place, his son Phineas, and Eleazar is prevented by death from continuing in his office. While he was alive as the high priest, Eleazar would have represented the people before God to pray for the people and to offer sacrifices, to seek atonement from God for the people's sin. But Eleazar, like all other high priests in ancient Israel after him, could never bring about a lasting state of peace with God and could never accomplish a definitive and enduring atonement for the people's sin. And there actually are many reasons that that was the case, but one of the reasons that Eleazar could never accomplish this is what we just read about in verse 33, death. His ministry could never bring about any enduring blessing from God, forgiveness from God, or peace with God because his life and ministry would eventually end. His priesthood was not a permanent post. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is a high priest who is able to bring about permanent blessing from God, permanent forgiveness from God, and permanent peace with God because His priestly ministry for God's people is permanent. How so? The resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. He always lives. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25 makes this point. Hebrews 7, 23, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Why? Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We do not have a high priest like Eleazar who's buried in a grave in Israel. Our high priest was that at one time. But he came out of a grave in Israel. And he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on behalf of his people, and even reigning as head over his church and all things. So in conclusion... To this sermon and to this book, these three graves in ancient Canaan remind us once again that God kept all His promises. Not one word fell to the ground unfulfilled. And the grave of Jesus in ancient Canaan also teaches us that truth. Because His tomb is empty, 
we can have the strongest confidence in God that He will keep all His promises to us for our good. Not one word will fail, for Christ is risen. The dead will be raised. There will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Some will be raised to everlasting life and joy in God. And some will be raised to everlasting torment away from the goodness and glory of God. And if you will trust in Jesus Christ, in in how as our great high priest, he gave his body and his blood to bear our iniquities, by his wounds you can be healed and you can be an inheritor with Christ of the the world to come, and you can have permanent peace with God and permanent blessing. He's able to save you to the uttermost because He always lives to make intercession for His people. The book of Joshua ends with three men in graves, but again, this is part of a bigger book, a bigger story, and the people of God in the grave is not how the Bible ends. Near the end of the book of Revelation, the conclusion of the whole Bible, we read about a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new place where God dwells with His people. And we read also there these words, that death shall be no more. Let's pray.